This is the Poetry Foundation's Essential American Poets podcast. Essential American Poets is an online audio poetry collection. The poets in the collection were selected in 2006 by Donald Hall when he was Poet Laureate. Recordings of the poets he selected are available online at poetryfoundation.org and poetryarchive.org. In this edition of the podcast, we'll hear poems by Robinson Jeffers. Robinson Jeffers' life and poetry celebrated the brute beauty of nature. He was born in Pittsburgh in 1887. His father, Dr. Jeffers, was a serious intellectual and strict disciplinarian who raised his son on the Bible and the Greek and Roman classics. Jeffers studied at Occidental College in Los Angeles, where he met Una Call Custer. The attraction was irresistible, but Custer was already married to a powerful Los Angeles lawyer. They had an on-again, off-again affair for seven years, until their story made page one of the Los Angeles Times. Humiliated, Custer's husband divorced her, and she married Jeffers the next day. The pair retreated north to a small cottage in Carmel-by-the-Sea, next to the wild, steep, rugged sea cliffs and backcountry canyons. Una became pregnant and gave birth to twin sons. Jeffers nursed a small inheritance and worked on his craft. His poems were heavily influenced by Greek poetry. They expressed his reverence for nature and his disgust with modern civilization. After six years in the cottage, Jeffers built his family a house on a bluff overlooking the Pacific, where the waves crashed on granite crags below. He built the house by rolling stones up a switchback path, chiseling them into shape and stacking them into place. He called it Tor House. Beside it, he built Hawk Tower, a gothic spire with a hidden staircase and a secret room just for Una. During these quiet decades at Tor House, Jeffers developed a roaring reputation in letters. In 1924, he published his breakthrough work, Tamar and Other Poems. He followed that with numerous books over the next decade. Jeffers' poetry earned him a devoted following, and in 1932, he became the first American poet to be featured on the cover of Time magazine. He even met some of the luminaries of the period, including Ansel Adams. But for all of this national and international fame, Jeffers preferred to stay at his craggy home. Una helped him manage public demands and preserve his time to write. She could not, however, insulate Jeffers from the world. More and more, crowds of tourists and beachgoers intruded on their peace in Big Sur. Then came World War II. Jeffers responded to the war through his poetry. It was strident in its isolationism and its acid criticism of world leaders. Jeffers was called a fascist sympathizer. His poems were labeled treasonous, and his followers dwindled. Jeffers had predicted this reaction, and he retreated, perhaps with some contentment, into obscurity and his quiet life at home. In 1950, Una died. Jeffers was heartbroken, and after a long and shallow depression, he died in 1962. Tor House was turned over to a foundation and designated a historic site. To this day, Jeffers is a role model for eco-conscious poets. The following poems were recorded at the Library of Congress in 1941. I suppose that in my verses there are a great many, you'll perhaps notice how many hawks fly through them. And that is really because there are so many hawks in the, on the mountains at home. And of all sorts, the red tail and the marsh hawk and the duck hawk, which is the American peregrine falcon, and uh, 
a sparrowhawk, many more, I won't count them all. But another thing that interested me in hawks was a hawk with a broken wing, which I had the nurse once. I, it was given to me and I had to take care of it. And uh, that suggested to me the two poems called Hurt Hawks. The first one about, well, there's so many hurt hawks about. The first one is about a hurt hawk in its wilderness. The second is about the one I took care of. The broken pillar of the wing jags from the clotted shoulder. The wing trails like a banner in defeat. No more to use the sky forever, but live with famine and pain a few days. Cat nor coyote will shorten the week of waiting for death. There is game without talons. He stands under the oak bush and waits the lame feet of salvation. At night he remembers freedom and flies in a dream. The dawns ruin it. He is strong, and pain is worse to the strong. Incapacity is worse. The curs of the day come and torment him at distance. No one but death the Redeemer will humble that head, the intrepid readiness, the terrible eyes. The wild guide of the world is sometimes merciful to those that ask mercy, not often to the arrogant. You do not know him, you communal people, or you have forgotten him. Intemperate and savage, the hawk remembers him. Beautiful and wild, the hawks and men that are dying remember him. I'd sooner accept the penalties, kill a man than a hawk, but the great red tail had nothing left but unable misery from the bone too shattered for mending, the wing that trailed under his talons when he moved. We had fed him six weeks, I gave him freedom. He wandered over the fallen hill in the hill and returned in the evening, asking for death, not like a beggar, still eyed with the old implacable arrogance. I gave him the lead gift in the twilight. What fell was relaxed, owl downy, soft feminine feathers. But what soared, the fierce rush, the night herons of the flooded river cried fear at its rising before it was quite unsheathed from reality. To go back to the beginning of the war, perhaps you remember that Hitler made a speech to his people in Danzig, September 1939, which was broadcast to America and elsewhere. The verses I shall read next are a little literal transcript of my own experiences that day, mixed with foreboding of things to come and, shall I say, a sickly attempt at humor at the end. This morning Hitler spoke in Danzig. We heard his voice. A man of genius, that is, of amazing ability, courage, devotion, cord on a sick child's soul, heard clearly through the dark wrath, a sick child wailing in Danzig, invoking destruction and wailing at it. Here the day was extremely hot, about noon, a south wind, like a blast from hell's mouth, spilled a slight rain on the parched land, and at five, a light earthquake danced the house, no harm done. Tonight, I have been amusing myself, watching the blood-red moon droop slowly into black sea through bursts of dry lightning and distant thunder. Well, the day is a poem. 
but too much like one of Jeffers's, crusted with blood and barbaric symbols, painful to excess, inhuman as a hawk's cry. The sick humor of these last lines refers, of course, to some long narrative poems I've written, which seem to have more than enough of blood and pain in them. Because they are reflections of a period of decadence and confusion and revolution between two great wars. The war came. Here is a poem that tried to meet it with a kind of desperate optimism. It was written in June 1940, after the great attacks, and is called The Bloody Sire. It is not bad. Let them play. Let the guns bark and the bombing plane speak his prodigious blasphemies. It is not bad. It is high time. Stark violence is still the sire of all the world's values. What but the wolf's tooth whittled so fine the fleet limbs of the antelope? What but fear winged the birds, and hunger jeweled with such eyes the great goshawk's head? Violence has been the sire of all the world's values. Who would remember Helen's face, lacking the terrible halo of spears? Who formed Christ but Herod and Caesar? the cruel and bloody victories of Caesar. Violence, the bloody sire of all the world's values. Never weep, let them play. Old violence is not too old to beget new values. I believe this deeply and faithfully, but it will be a long time before the new values can be realized. Night without sleep, the world as the world is, the nations rearm and prepare to change. The age of tyrants returns. The greatest civilization that has ever existed builds itself higher towers on breaking foundations. Recurrent episodes. They were determined when the apes' children first ran in packs, chipped flint to an edge. I lie and hear dark rain beat the roof and the blind wind. In the morning, perhaps, I shall find strength again to value the immense beauty of this time of the world. The flowers of decay, their pitiful loveliness, the fever dream tapestries that back the drama and are called the future. This ebb of vitality feels the ignoble and cruel incidents, not the vast abstract order. I lie and hear dark rain beat the roof and the night blind wind. In the Ventana country, darkness and rain and the roar of waters fill the deep mountain throats. The creekside shelf of sand where we lay last August under a slip of stars and firelight played on the leaning gorge walls is drowned and lost. The deer of the country huddle on a ridge in a close herd under madrone trees. They tremble when a rock slide goes down. They open great darkness, drinking eyes, and press closer. Cataracts of rock rain down the mountain from cliff to cliff and torment the stream bed. The stream deals with them. The laurels are wounded. Redwoods go down with their earth and lie forth the gorge. I hear the torrent boulders battering each other. I feel the flesh of the mountain move on its bones in the wet darkness. Is this more beautiful than Barnes' disasters? 
These wounds will heal in their time, so will humanity's. This is more beautiful at night. This poem is called, O Lovely Rock. We stayed the night in the pathless gorge of Ventana Creek up the East Fork. The rock walls and the mountain ridges hung forest on forest above our heads, maple and redwood, laurel, oak, madrone, up to the high and slender Santa Lucian firs that stare up the cataracts of slide rocks of the star-colored precipices. We lay on gravel and kept the little campfire for warmth. Past midnight, only two or three coals glowed red in the cooling darkness. I laid a clutch of dead bay leaves on the ember ends and felt a dry sticks across them and lay down again. The revived flame lighted my sleeping son's face and his companions and the vertical face of the great gorge wall across the stream. Light leaves overhead danced in the fire's breath. Tree trunks were seen. It was the rock wall that fascinated my eyes and mind. Nothing strange, light gray diorite with two or three slanting seams in it, smooth polished by the endless attrition of slides and floods. No fern nor lichen, pure naked rock, as if I were seeing rock for the first time, as if I were seeing through the flame-lit surface into the real and bodily and living rock. Nothing strange. I cannot tell you how strange. The silent passion, the deep nobility and childlike loveliness, this fate going on outside our fates. It is here in the mountain like a grave, smiling child. I shall die and my boys will live and die. Our world will go on through its rapid agonies of change and discovery. This age will die and wolves have howled in the snow around the new Bethlehem. This rock will be here, grave, earnest, not passive. The energies that are its atoms will still be bearing the whole mountain above. And I, many packed centuries ago, felt its intense reality with love and wonder, this lonely rock. And here are 11 lines called the place for no story, because the coast here, its pure and simple grandeur, seemed to me too beautiful to be the scene of any narrative poem of mine. And I have kept the promise I made to it. The coast hills of Severanus Creek. No trees but dark, scant pasture drawn thin over rocks shaped like flame. The old ocean at the land's foot, the vast gray extension beyond the long white violence. A herd of cows and the bull, far distant, hardly apparent up the dark slope, and the gray air haunted with hawks. This place is the noblest thing I have ever seen. No imaginable human presence here could do anything but dilute the lonely, self-watchful passion. That was Robinson Jeffers, recorded at the Library of Congress in 1941, and used by permission of Stanford University Press. You have been listening to the Essential American Poets podcast, produced by the Poetry Foundation in collaboration with PoetryArchive.org. To learn more about Robinson Jeffers and other Essential American Poets, and to hear more poetry, 
go to poetryfoundation.org.